we are looking at a fairly large portion of Scripture this morning. We are walking through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of our practice here at Veritas to, um, to kind of find a, a book of the Bible or a section of Scripture and just kind of walk through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. Uh, we believe that this is God's Word to us, uh, and so we want to know what it says. Um, of course, we might have our own particular questions that we have when we come to the Christian faith, but even more important than our particular questions is just what God has revealed. Um, and, and so we, we typically make it a practice to just kind of walk through books of the Bible and to see what God has for us uh, in His Word. And uh, we are walking through a kind of odd book right now called the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and uh, there's a lot of poetry. There's a lot of um, dark poetry, uh, to be honest, a lot of dark kind of proverbs and sayings and, and difficult things to consider. Uh, and, but although it is kind of a dark book and kind of a depressing book, it's been very good for us because as the goal of the book is to depress us into dependence upon God, I think it's been uh, achieving precisely that because God's word never goes out void. So we're looking at Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 7, 14 this morning. Um, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy. This is the word of our God. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny He has laid out for us. If we say it long enough, eventually we're going to reap a harvest. We're going to get exactly what we're saying. Start calling yourself healed, happy, whole, blessed, and prosperous. Stop talking to God about how big your mountains are and start talking to your mountains about how big your God is. Obviously, these are our quotes from Joel Osteen. Uh, he is the author of a popular book, Your Best Life Now. Your Best Life Now. And the sort of main idea of the book is made obvious by the book's description on its cover. I'll admit I've never read it. But Mr. Osteen uh, wants his readers to reach new heights of health, wealth, and victory. He believes that God wants them to live their best lives now and that if we only have enough faith, we can be healthy and wealthy and achieve a life free of affliction and adversity. And so he wrote this book to help people live how God, he believes, wants them to live, to live their best lives now. But is that true? Does God really want us to live our best lives now? Now, Don't get me wrong, I I do indeed believe that God does want to bless us with abundance and health and victory and a life free of any and all suffering. And eventually, He will do just that when Christ returns and ushers in the age to come. But does God want us to live our best lives now? Right now, does he want us to live lives free of suffering, free of hardship, free of affliction, free of adversity? Or does he instead, in his sovereign purposes, plan and permit times of hardship and suffering and affliction and adversity to come into our lives, ultimately for our good and for his glory? The preacher of Ecclesiastes differs from Mr. Osteen on this point. Here in Ecclesiastes 6.10 through 7.14, he calls us to, to recognize that God and his sovereign purposes does indeed plan and permit adversity and affliction in our lives. And yet the preacher also does want us to see that just because we're not going to live our best lives now, due to affliction and adversity, we can live our better lives now can live our better lives now. And we can do that by receiving the benefits and the good that God is giving us, that God has for us through our times of affliction and adversity. And that's the sort of big idea of the passage this morning, that since all of our times are appointed by God, we have to live wisely by looking for the good in affliction and adversity. That's what our big, uh, the big idea of our passage says. Since all, the times of our, since all our times are appointed by God, we have to live wisely by looking for the good in affliction and adversity. And we're going to explore that by looking at what is unchangeable, what is better, and what to consider. Okay, so first we see what is unchangeable in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Look at verses 10 through 12, chapter 6 here. The preacher says, whatever 
has come to be, has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So you see, he begins this particular passage by saying that whatever has come to be has already been named. And that's a sort of poetic and and beautiful way of saying this, that what happens in our lives, whatever circumstances we meet with, whatever events have come our way, they are all under the control and authority of the sovereign God. The preacher says that they have already been named by God. God named the times and seasons of our lives. And in the Bible, naming something is often a a kind of sign that you have authority over it. Okay, so think about Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates Adam and Eve in His image so that they would exercise dominion and authority over the created order as His representatives. And what is one of the first tasks that God gives to Adam? He gives him the task of naming the animals. It's a task given to him by God to show that he has authority over the created order that God has put him in charge of. Or perhaps you might even think about the duty of parents to name their children. This is a duty that parents have. Something parents do for a number of reasons, but it's partly, it's partly a sign that they are a child's authority until they reach adulthood. It's an act an authoritative figure does to show that they have authority over that which is being named. And what does our passage say about God and the various times and seasons that we meet with in our lives? It says that they've been named by God. God named them. He has authority over them. He is in control of them. We are, are not in control of the times and seasons of our lives. They are largely unchangeable to us. God can change them, but we can't. What God has fixed by His providence is unchangeable to us. And it's it's worth pointing out here that the preacher is, is kind of assuming that there are things in your life that you'd rather not have to deal with, right? He's assuming here that there are painful providences in everyone's life. Everyone suffers. At some point in their lives, in one way or another, everyone, to some degree, suffers. Everyone, to some degree or another, deals with affliction and adversity. We all, to some degree of severity or another, we meet with sickness. We meet with strained family dynamics. We meet with the death of loved ones. We meet with financial distress. We meet with suffering and difficulty in ways which we wish we didn't. There's actually a a fairly well-known book written about a verse in our passage this morning. Uh, verse 713, uh, this, this book, it's called The Crook in the Lot. The Crook in the Lot. It's written by a theologian and minister named Thomas Boston in 1737. And um, it's not about a thief in a yard, right? It's uh, by crook, he's crook in a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, he's talking about, by crook, he means he's something that's crooked, something that's not right, something that's hard and difficult some sort of affliction or adversity. And, and by lot, he's talking about your particular lot in life, your situation, your circumstances. And he says that everyone's lot in life has something crooked in it. There's some sort of suffering, some sort of hardship, some sort of painful providence that you'd rather not be there. 
Now listen to what he says about it. He says, everybody's lot in this world hath some crook in it. Complainers are apt to make odious comparisons. They look about and taking a distant view of the condition of others can discern nothing in it but what is straight and just to one's wish. So they pronounce their neighbor's lot wholly straight, but that is a false verdict. There is no perfection here. No lot out of heaven is without a crook. We all face adversity and affliction. We all face illness and injury, death and disturbance, hurt and hardship as part of our lot in life as we live in this fallen world. And what this what the preacher is trying to drive home for us here is that many of our afflictions and adversities remain unchangeable to us on this side of glory. He says so in, in chapter 7, verse 13. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Indeed, he, he is the sovereign one. We are not. He is, he is the one in control of our destinies and our determinations. We are not. He is the one who sovereignly and providentially upholds the universe by the word of his power. We are not. So we might rightly conclude with something else Thomas Boston says about this verse. He says, as to the crook in your lot, God has made it and it must continue while he will have it so. Should you ply your utmost force to even it or make it straight, your attempt will be vain. It will not change for all you can do. Only he who made it can mend it or make it straight. The preacher is making this precise point here in verse 10 of chapter 6. He says, it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? In other words, there's no point in trying to contend with God. You, you can't, there's no point in taking God to court. You don't sit in the seat of plaintiff with him. And he doesn't sit in the seat of the accused. He sits in the place of judge. You can't take him to court for his providential ruling of your life. And of course, he's not saying that you shouldn't pray or bring your laments and your requests to God, that he change your lot we have an exhortation from Jesus, actually, to do precisely that. So, yes, we are free and even exhorted to pray and to ask God for a change in circumstances if we need one. But we ought never approach it as if we are in a dispute with God. We ought never try to contend with Him. We don't sit in the seat of plaintiff. He doesn't sit in the seat of the accused. He sits in the seat of judge. He is not one to be disputed with. And besides, says the preacher, do you think that you can run your life in the universe better than he? That's what he's talking about. Next, in the verse, verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell him what will be after him under the sun? You see, he says, you don't know what God knows. You don't see what he sees. You, do, you see a much, much, much smaller picture, an infinitely smaller picture than what he sees. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees from eternity past into eternity future. If there's anyone who knows what's good for you and for this world, it's him, not you. You don't know what will come after your time here passes. You're here for a moment, and then poof, you're gone in the next. 
And so rather than contend with God, rather than dispute with Him, rather than accuse Him, rather than blame Him for the painful providences in our lives, it's better to find the benefits therein. It's better to find the good in seasons of adversity and affliction. And indeed, there's often buried treasure there. Some of the best feasts in life happen when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. There's buried treasure in times of affliction and adversity. It may not be immediately visible to the naked eye, but God has good things for us in our affliction and adversity, which brings us next to what is better in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Here in 7, 1 through 12, the preacher launches into kind of a series of, of proverbs and most of them, they kind of stick to this particular pattern. They, they state that one thing is better than another. We might call them the better than Proverbs. They're pr- pretentious Proverbs. I think they're better than everyone else. They seek to show you that that one thing or one way is better than another. What's interesting about these Proverbs is that they kind of say that things that we typically consider to be bad are better for us than things we typically prefer and think to be good. The first series of of better than Proverbs here are in verses 1 through 4. And here the preacher takes us to the funeral home, actually. Listen to what he says. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So here the preacher says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. And he seems not to be talking about one's own death, but maybe the death of a friend, a loved one, an acquaintance. Because obviously it's the living that go to the house of mourning and who sorrow in the face of death, as he talks about here. And the preacher says that it's, it's actually better for us to go to the house of mourning and sorrow. To use a, a kind of modern analogy, saying it's better to go to the funeral home than to the wedding reception. He says that sorrow is better than laughter. To mourn and lament the death of a friend or loved one is better than going to see the the latest uh, Kevin Hart flick at the theaters, the movie theaters. Sound like an ancient person. (laughs) And it seems a shock, though, that he would say this, doesn't it? Death is such a a horrendous and awful thing. There's not much worse in life than the death of someone we know and love. There's not much worse in life than coming face to face with the horrors and difficulties of death. As as Sidney Gradana says, he says, death is the climax of human suffering. And yet the preacher says, it's better to go to the funeral than to the wedding reception. Because as he says in verse 2, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. This is why the wise choose the house of mourning over the house of mirth. Because coming face to face with death while living reminds you that one day you will meet your own end and you can't really live well without living in the shadow of your own death. You can't live well without taking death to heart. You know, as a a minister of the gospel, part of my duties 
include both marrying and burying people. And of course, there's, there's a sense in which I would prefer weddings, obviously more joyful occasions. And another says, I, I, I wish I never actually had to conduct funerals because I don't want people to die. But on the other hand, as a, as a minister of the gospel, my vocation by definition means that I deal with matters of eternal weight. My main interest in, is that is in that of divine truth and eternal truth and everlasting life and everlasting punishment. And I've got to tell you, typically at weddings, people don't have much interest in such matters. There's more of an interest in in kind of trivial matters, trivial joys, frivolous pleasures. And so I get up to preside over a wedding at times and I tell people about a Messiah who was tortured and crucified and died to take the penalty of the transgressions of his people that they might inherit eternal life and people look at me like I'm from outer space. But when there's a corpse at the front of a room, when someone has died, when people come face to face with the horrors of death, they're just more open to hearing and receiving such truths. They're they're more open to and, and impacted by divine truth. They're more open to hearing about eternal life and eternal punishment. In the house of mourning, people see their own end, and because of that, the living will lay it to heart. They care about weightier things, things that matter eternally. Next, the preacher also wants us to see that not only is going to funerals and taking death to heart better than weddings and trivial joys, but hearing the criticisms of the wise is better than joking and laughing and singing with fools. He says, starting in verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. He says that it's more beneficial to listen to the criticism and rebukes of the wise than it is to listen to the songs and laughter of fools. It's better to be criticized than to listen to the top Billboard 100 pop charts. If we're taking death to heart, we would do well to ask ourselves the question, at the end of our lives, when we look back, will we have benefited more from the top 40 pop hits in 2020 or from the criticisms and rebukes you receive from wise people. To illustrate this contrast, let me read some lyrics to a song that's recently spent time in the number one spot, the Billboard Hot 100 list. The song was praised for the depth of its lyrics and and even got a nomination by iHeartRadio Music for Best Lyrics by Selena Gomez, and it's called Lose You to Love Me. Here's the course. To love, love, yeah. To love, love, yeah. To love, yeah. I needed to lose you to love me, yeah. To love, love, yeah. To love, love, yeah. To love, yeah. I needed to lose you to love me. Stop there, spare you the loss of more gray matter. (laughs) 
but it's, it really is. I mean, consider what benefit do you receive from listening to, to fun pop songs with stupid lyrics? It might be a fine thing to do and even a permissible thing to do. I'm not saying it's sin, but is it really bringing all that much of a net positive to your life? preacher says uh, here the the same thing about the laughter of fools. Of course the Bible doesn't condemn laughter in and of itself, but here we would do to to heed the preacher says about the laughter of fools because the laughter of fools means to find pleasure in laughter and that which is trivial and stupid. Again, perhaps it's sometimes permissible, perhaps it's, it's, it's maybe even briefly enjoyable, But the preacher says that the trivial jokes and fleeting pleasures of fools are like the crackling of thorns under a pot. So you start a fire to heat a pot, right? So you can cook food in it. And of course, you need some wood for your fire. And uh, maybe you get some wood in there that has some thorns in it. And those thorns, they kind of crackle and pop under the fire. It's kind of an annoying sound. It's a meaningless sound. It's just noise. The laughter of fools is like that. It's just noise. It doesn't bring any benefit to your life. But in contrast to this, the rebuke and criticism of the wise actually brings a benefit to your life. Of course, being criticized is not a pleasant thing. I don't think I know anyone that actually likes to be criticized. Sometimes it can even be a very painful experience. And yet, if approached wisely, criticism and rebuke can be one of the most beneficial gifts we receive in life. And of course, the preacher's not only committing listening to criticism without discernment. You know, the, the criticism of foolish people may very well be ignored. But if it comes from a wise person, a mature and insightful and prudent person, then that criticism may be more valuable than gold to you. If you'll permit me to use maybe another personal example from my vocation, I remember several years ago when I was being kind of assessed um, by a number of other pastors to determine whether or not I, I possessed the character and competency to be a pastor myself. You know, a- Amy and I, we were examined in, in a plethora of ways, some of them hard, some of them uncomfortable. Uh, well, one of the ways, one of the items that had to be examined, though, um, this wasn't particularly uncomfortable, although I guess in some ways it was, uh, during my, incess- my assessment, I, I, my preaching had to be obset- uh, assessed. Um, was I able to teach, basically, was the, what they were trying to determine. Could I handle the Word of God with the competency and reverence necessary to edify God's people? And of course, pastors of my church at the time and, and were involved in the assessment, as were some uh, other uh, pastors from other churches in our church planting network, and they listened to Uh, several of my sermons that I preached, and they sent very detailed criticism, like very detailed. It was so detailed, uncomfortably so, just tearing me and my sermons to shreds, pointing out every little thing I had done wrong. And you know, sometimes I, I just thought they were being downright mean. But honestly, there are criticisms in those documents. I still have them, There are criticisms in those documents that I will never forget. Some of them I carry with me to this day and affect the way I prepare and preach every single week. Was it pleasant? No, it wasn't pleasant. 
It's almost never pleasant to be criticized, especially for something that you care so deeply about. But especially now that I have some, some distance, I, I can't tell you how thankful I am for those criticisms that I receive from, from some more seasoned and, and wise ministers. It would all do well to listen to the rebukes and criticisms of the wise. Consider what this might look like for you. If a brother or sister here at Veritas confronts you with the reality of your own sin, your own foolishness, don't run away and spurn their rebuke. If a boss or a coworker at work criticizes you, criticizes certain practices you've, impl- you've implemented or, 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 or direct- decisions you've made, directions that you've gone in, don't ignore them. If a parent or an older mentor offers a bit of correction for some of your decisions in life, don't write them off as old-fashioned or irrelevant. Listen to the rebuke of the wise. Hear their criticism. That's a way that you can live your better life now, the preacher says. And then next, in verses 7 to 10, the preacher tells us that it's better to patiently endure present adversities than to look for quick fixes or shortcuts or to whine and wonder why things aren't easier. Everybody says in verse 8, it says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And who he's rebuking here are those who refuse to patiently endure hardships and affliction and adversity. He actually roots this lack of patient endurance in the sin of pride and arrogance. And you can see the sin of pride in the face of adversity by a few of its fruits. The first fruit is that of looking for sinful shortcuts to get out of adversity. He speaks of this in verse 7 when he says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. The word translated as oppression there could be just as well translated as extortion. And surely extortion drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. You can see what he's saying here. He's talking about someone who is met with some sort of financial difficulty and distress and maybe they've had a large debt hanging over their heads. Maybe they've gone into a lean financial season and instead of patiently enduring and working hard, they find an opportunity to make a quick fix through extortion and bribery and they take it. And this can even be a serious temptation for the wise, the preacher says. Money troubles are, are, are hard, especially if you're a provider for others, like a spouse, little children. You know, the preacher says this is foolishness. It's better to patiently endure money troubles and lean seasons, than, and it's better to humbly receive and live wisely in the midst of those seasons than to become corrupt and proud and to make sinful decisions. Another prideful response to adversities is to get angry, the preacher says. It says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Sometimes when we face hardship and suffering, in a fit of arrogance and entitlement, we get angry. I don't deserve this, we might say, as we shake our fist at God. Or maybe in the midst of adversity and affliction, instead of angry, we get nostalgic. The preacher exposes this foolishness in verse 10. He says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We should go back to the good old days. Back when things were easier. Back when life wasn't so complicated. Back when I didn't have to deal with these present difficulties and we seek to escape 
in our minds through nostalgic daydreaming. All of that is foolishness, the preacher says. Rather than looking for shortcuts, rather than getting angry, rather than longing for bygone days, it is better to receive with patient endurance that which is hard and difficult. To seek to avoid all adversity and affliction in life is foolish. Why? Because if you approach present afflictions and adversities with wisdom, you will find what is beneficial and good in the midst of them. Take death to heart. Hear wise criticisms. This is wisdom. The preacher compares this kind of wisdom to having uh, 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 an inheritance of, of financial wealth. He says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Of course, an, an inheritance is something that one receives in the future, right? It's not something you possess immediately. It's not something that has an immediate benefit. Likewise, the benefits of living wisely in the face of adversity and affliction may not be immediately apparent, and yet there is a great payoff for those who patiently endure. Which brings us lastly to what to consider. You see here in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And this kind of brings us back to the point that he was making in 6, 10 to 12, doesn't it? The preacher reminds us that no matter what adversities and afflictions we face, none of them are outside of the control and authority of the sovereign Lord of the universe. He has already named all our times, the funerals and criticisms, the financial difficulties, the lean seasons, the adversities and afflictions, all of them have already been named by him. All that comes into our lives has been planned and permitted by him. And so therefore, we ought to consider God has made both the good times and the bad times. Therefore, enjoy the good times and receive the benefits of the bad. When you go to the house of mourning, take heart. When you're criticized, listen, learn, and grow. When you face any affliction or adversities, don't wish your ba yourself back to times of pleasure and ease. Don't get angry or entitled. Don't look for sinful cheats and wicked shortcuts. Instead, find the good in what God has for you here. Consider that God has fixed this season and circumstance in your life. He has given you this crook in your lot. And he has, he has called you, Christian. He has called you his child. He has called you his very own beloved child. Trust that, he has, that there are gifts here for you. He would never send anything into your life that wasn't for your good. Trust that he has something for you here. Now, before we close, I want to briefly not just consider that God has good for us in our affliction, but, but let's consider together a little more specifically what kind of good God gives us in the midst of our affliction and adversity. And of course, we can't really exhaust the kind of gifts that God might have for us in the midst of adversity and affliction. I just want to look at a few New Testament texts that speak to how God uses our sufferings and, and difficulties to give us good gifts. 
Now first, the first specific good that we can consider in the times of adversity is, is that God is forcing our afflictions and adversity to work for us. He's forcing them to work for us. He is forcing all things to work together for our good, Paul says in Romans 8. And in the same chapter, Paul speaks about this in Romans 8, 35 through 37. He says there, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Of course, no one desires to meet with tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, criticism, what have you. No one desires to go to the house of mourning. And yet Paul says that in the midst of these kinds of things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, I, I, I love how, how John Piper explains this particular verse. Listen to what he says about it. He says, a conqueror defeats his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe, and one who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. And do you see what he's saying here? He's saying a conqueror may defeat his enemy. A conqueror may defeat adversity and affliction. But we're not merely conquerors. We are more than conquerors. And those who, someone who is more than a conqueror is someone whose enemies are then forced to turn and serve them. And that's precisely what we are in Christ. We may meet with difficulties and hardships, but God doesn't waste our adversities and afflictions. Through Christ, those adversities and afflictions are serving us. Let's consider a few ways, a few more ways that they do. Next, adversity often leads to an experience of God's particular comfort. The Apostle Paul, he speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Perhaps you remember or being in, in the Sermon on the Mount last year, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says something similar. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's something I've experienced in, in times of affliction. I know that many of you have. I, I know many Christians, whenever they meet with times of affliction, it's almost an unexplainable mystery. But there's just often a sweetness in suffering. Because you can sense the sweetness of God's nearness in a way that you never have before. As the psalmist testifies in Psalm 34, 18, it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's unexplained. I don't know. It's, it's a mystery to me. But it's just that you can often see God in His grace more clearly when your eyes are filled with tears. As He comes to you, this particular comfort. Not only does adversity lead us to experience God's particular comfort, but it also prepares us to care for and comfort others who face hardship and affliction. 
That's why the Apostle Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 1 to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Maybe you've seen or or experienced or discerned this. I've seen it again and again. It's often those Christians who have suffered most deeply in this life who are therefore, by their suffering, prepared to best care for and comfort those who are suffering. Again, God doesn't waste our adversities and afflictions, and this is one of the ways he uses them. We might turn and be a source of encouragement and edification, a source of care and comfort for others. And lastly, all adversity is preparing us for the coming glory. No matter what hardship we meet with, God doesn't waste a thing. He's using it to prepare us for the coming glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God is taking all of our enemies, that of sickness and famine and suffering and persecution and pain and even death itself, every adversity, every affliction, he's taking it all and he's forcing it to serve us, to form us and conform us to the image of his beloved son. So that by any means necessary, we might share in the power of his resurrection life in the age to come. And the glory we'll experience then, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 18, is not even worth comparing to the light momentary afflictions we face in the here and now. Any present adversities pale in comparison to the glory we will experience and receive then. And so we can receive our times of adversity and affliction with wisdom, discerning the benefit that we find in them because our sovereign God is forcing all things to work out for his glory and for our good. And we can rest assured of this because he's already taken the worst of the worst and given us the best of the best through it. Consider lastly the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In all the events to happen in human history, under God's providential guidance, there has been nothing worse than the crucifixion and death of the Son of God. It was the greatest injustice in human history. He was the one innocent and righteous human being the only one who deserved nothing but eternal and infinite glory, and yet in his life, in his body, he was taken down to the lowest of lows, to the worst of worsts, the worst kind of adversity and affliction, tortured, mutilated, under the wrath of God and humanity, and he died as a sinner. And yet God took the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe, the crucifixion, murder, and death of the Christ and Son of God. And he made it into the best thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe. He took the worst, most horrendous, most unjust event, and in it and through it, he redeemed his people and his creation. Because of that, we are made into God's beloved children. 
He took our sin upon himself on the cross, Jesus did, so that we might become sons and daughters of the one true God. And because we are his children, purchased and saved by the death of the Son of God, we can rest assured in the midst of any affliction, in the midst of any adversity that we face, that God only plans and permits it for our good and his glory. My friends, since all of our times are appointed by God, and since this God has called us his very own beloved children, he is working all things out for our good. May we be assured of it this morning and in the seasons and circumstances of our lives to come. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts as we come to the table. Remind us that Christ has taken the worst of the worst to give us the best of the best, communion with you, life with you, here and in the age to come. Remind us of that and comfort us of that with that and assure us of that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.